Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Hey everybody, welcome back to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We're continuing our Top 10 Prospects podcast series today with the Cleveland Guardians. And to do that, we are joined by Teddy Cahill from beautiful Washington, D.C. Teddy, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Always a good time to, uh, to talk. Well, I shouldn't say always a good time. This is the first time we're talking Guardians prospects here <laughs> on the Baseball America podcast. So uh, previously, it's been a good time talking Indians prospects. Now we're talking Guardians prospects. Yeah, in that vein, this is an organization that is in transition. Obviously, first and foremost, the name change. The Cleveland Indians are now the Cleveland Guardians, and that's the biggest thing off the field. But on the field, uh, this is an organization where there's just a, a lot of things in transition right now. Cleveland had its first losing season last year since 2012. They went 80 and 82. Before the season, obviously, they traded Francisco Lindor. He became the latest in a long line of stars to be traded away by the organization. After the season, Carter Hawkins, one of the rising stars in their front office, left to become the new general manager of the Chicago Cubs. It just feels like the Indians or the Guardians or Cleveland, as we said, we're going to call them, for really the bulk of last decade, were, were a pretty stable organization. They made five playoff appearances in a seven-year span or an eight-year span, I should say. Uh, they were consistently a team that was at the very least in the mid-80 wins range. And a lot of times they were you know, 90, 91, 92, 93. But again, they've traded away a lot of key guys. And the only thing that, that really jumped out to me that was different about last year was in the past we've seen them trade away so many standout pitchers, Trevor Bauer, Mike Clevenger, Corey Kluber, and they've had guys come up and replace them somewhat seamlessly, Shane Bieber, Zach Plesak, Aaron Savale. Last year, the pitchers they called upon and were counting on to really kind of be the next wave of that. It didn't really work out. Kyle Quantrill had a really nice year, but Tristan McKenzie really struggled, was demoted at one point. Eli Morgan really struggled in 18 starts. Sam Henkes, Logan Allen, JC Mejia. I mean, all, all these things I feel like we've taken for granted what happened for Cleveland didn't really happen last year. And, and as a result, they had that losing record. Where is this organization right now? And what can we realistically expect moving forward here in these next couple of years? Well, I mean, I would push back on a lot of that. I mean, first of all, the, the pitching situation this year was a mess because they had the best pitcher in baseball injured and then several injuries beyond that. They would never want to break in as many rookies as they did last year. And the fact that Cal Quantrill went out and established himself as a future member of the rotation uh, after the Padres had given up on him as a starter. And a lot of people had wondered whether he was just going to be better in the bullpen uh, to begin with, I would qualify as a big success. And then you look at McKenzie and yeah, you can say that that was a disappointment. And, you know, I, you also have to remember that he was a rookie and, you know, he was on the prospect list a year ago and, uh, you know, development is not linear and he pitched better at the end of the year. And I would still say that that's a future member of, uh, 
you know, you, you're going to look to him to do something. I mean, would you have loved to have Eli Morgan, you know, do an Aaron Savali thing? Like, yeah, of course. But I mean, Eli Morgan is who he is. And, you know, frankly, the fact that he's a, was a, a viable bit or what was counted on to be a big league starter as long as he was last year says a lot more about just where the pitching staff is. Um, I mean, yeah, they only won 80 games. Yeah, it was a losing season. And yeah, that's disappointing. But I mean, you know, it's not like they tanked. Uh, they were in contention for a while. Uh, and in a year where you trade one of the best players on the team, you know, I, I feel again, like I, you can't, you can't just ask them to keep go on, uh, keep, keep going on the way, the way that they are. They don't have the payroll that would allow for that to happen. Um, you know, the, the Rays have down years as well. Everyone that operates a payroll in the neighborhood of where the guardians have been operating a payroll is eventually going to have these years, going to have these cycles where they go down. And the key is just making sure that they happen infrequently and for very short periods of time. And so I guess that's now the, the big question is where are they going from here? And it's going to be about the pitching. It just as it has been for a long time, a healthy Shane Bieber would go a long way to, to correcting a lot of what you saw in 2021. Yeah, you kind of hit on the point there, which before we dive into the farm system, I do want to expand on that a little bit. Given what they have in the major leagues right now and given what they have in the farm system, how long do you expect this quote unquote down cycle to last? Is this a one-year blip and they can contend again right away in 2022? Will it be maybe another year or two of, of 500 ish play? What realistically should we expect out of the guardians moving forward? Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by contend. You know, the division has gone tougher around them, which is one of the, the issues that they're facing here is that the white Sox uh, went out and committed a whole bunch of money and made a bunch of win now moves like hiring Tony La Russa. Uh, you know, so they are they are out there trying to go out and, and win a World Series title right now. Uh, the Tigers are cycling up. Uh, you saw a lot of their their prospects hit the big leagues. Uh, they got more on the way. Uh, you know, they're just in in a in an upswing right now. So, you know, you're you're competing with them. You, you got to wonder where the Twins go after bottoming out last year. That. I don't think anyone's expecting them to, to be quite so bad again. So then what does that look like? And so basically what I'm saying is the central division has gone tougher. I think the guardians have what it takes to compete for the playoffs, uh, whatever, I guess that means in the new CBA, but I, is it realistic for them to close the gap on the white Sox all in one year? I mean, I, things would have to break right for them, I guess they, they, they would need to stay healthy and they might need, you know, some help from, from other, you know, you know, from the White Sox and not catching some of the breaks that they caught last year. You mentioned this is an organization whose success has really been defined by its pitching for the better part of, of five or six years now. At the same time, looking at where this team's weaknesses are and what they have in the farm system, it does kind of dovetail nicely. And what I mean by that is you look at the Guardians, and this has been a, a fairly consistent story the last couple of years offensively uh, they have really struggled they were in the bottom 10 in the major leagues and batting average on base percentage and OPS last year they were more middle of the pack and slugging um, but outside of Fran Reyes and Jose Ramirez there was just not a lot of consistent offensive production but you look at this farm system as it currently stands and as you ranked the top 10 prospects this year six of their top seven prospects are position players take us through this group and how much 
they could potentially be the answer to solving some of Cleveland's offensive shortcomings? Well, I mean, you've got a fair number of position players here. There are a lot of them that are, you know, up the middle infielders. And I don't know how much you can really expect those guys to come in here and, and fix some of what has ailed the, the offense over the last few years. I, Freeman, Tyler Freeman especially is, you know, a, has great, you know, hitability. Um, you know, George Valera, when he comes up, you know, he's always been compared to Juan Soto and that's wildly unfair given what Juan Soto has become. But, uh, you know, the point is he can be an all around hitter. Uh, you know, but a, a lot of what these guys stand out for, and I don't want to diminish anyone's offensive ability. Brian Rocchio is probably going to be a pretty good offensive player. But what gets him and what gets Arias and, and some of these other guys ranked so highly is that they're you know, really high-end defensive shortstops. And you know, so I, I just would really caution putting too much on them uh, when, when it comes time to you know, remake, remake an offense that, that you know, could use some, some power from, from other positions. And, you know, the guys that are, you know, looked at as, as being more of the power threats, like a Nolan Jones, uh, you know, he's coming off of one of, you know, a disappointing year. Like if he had had a better year, he probably would have been in Cleveland last year instead of staying in AAA the whole time. So I, it's a, it's an interesting group. I, I think it has a, a lot of upside, but to, to look at, at, look at it as, well, they're going to bring the, this wave in and be a great offensive team. Like, I, I just don't think that's what, that's not what they're there for, and that's not what they're going to be looked at to, to do. As we dive into this farm system, Tyler Freeman took the number one spot. He's been one of the most consistent hitters, not just in the organization, but the entire minor leagues since he was drafted. He hit 323 last year. His career average is 319. Again, he's always hit for average, always gotten on base pretty much every level. His season was cut short last year by a small labrum tear in his shoulder that required season-ending surgery after he tried to, to come back from it. What is the outlook for Tyler Freeman right now, and, and where does he kind of fit into the Guardians' future plans? Well, I mean, he's, uh, like I said, he stands out so much for his, his hit ability. He has just hit everywhere he's gone. Um, right now, he, he was at AA last year. Uh, they are generally uh, an organization that believes in you know, everyone making, making their moves, um, you know, going through the progression. And so I would expect that he'll go to AAA and they'll look for him to perform there. Uh, you could see him in Cleveland this year, I think. Um, but it, it, he's, he has to, you know, a, a after having that surgery, the priority number one is just, you know, getting back up to game speed and then, uh, you know, seeing, seeing where it goes from there. Uh, he, uh, you, you would figure it could be, you know, he's been a shortstop his whole life, basically. A lot of people look at him more as a second baseman at the uh, at the big league level, and I think that's definitely going to be true in Cleveland, just considering who is around him. Uh, but he has uh, he has never betting against Tyler Freeman defensively has yet to prove yet to prove to be correct. So you know we'll see, but I, I do think eventually second base is probably what you're looking at here. 
Yeah, one of the things, uh, just talking to scouts around the game before he went down with his injury was there's really a, a pretty strong confidence that second base is where he'll end up, but he should hit enough for the position. Uh, consistent plus hit grades on him, just the contact ability is elite, swing decisions, strike zone awareness. It's all there, just a really good instinctual player in the box. There might not be the most impact there. Again, depending who you talk to, you'll get maybe it's 10 home runs, maybe it's 15, but if you're hitting 280, 290, 300 with 10 bombs, playing really good defense up the middle, that, that's a really good player. Given that that is the projection, how much discussion was there for him at number one compared to maybe some other players in the organization? Was it clear cut or, or was it a debate? I mean, I, I, I don't, again, I'll, I'll push back on the idea okay. that he's only going to hit 10 home runs. You know, like who in the big leagues is only hitting 10 home runs with these rocket balls? Um, you know, we heard this forever with Lindor. And I fell into the trap so many times about saying, well, like, how is Lindor ever going to hit for power? And like, where's the impact going to come from? And like, yeah, he's a gold glove shortstop, but like, what else is he going to do? Well, I mean, Francisco Lindor is an MVP candidate. Uh, so I, I'm not going to fall into that trap again. And I, that's not to say that Tyler Freeman is Francisco Lindor, <laughs> but uh, you know, with these, with the balls that they play with in the big leagues, at least right now, uh, I am not going to sit here and say anyone has 10 home run power. Um, you know, short Freddie Galvis like, can, if Freddie Galvis can hit 20 home runs in the major leagues, you're right. Anything is possible. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, so first of all that, and then second of all, I would say that I don't think the guardians have a number one prospect. I think they have like five guys that you could rank number one and you could rank and, and the the converse of that means number one could be number five I just don't think there's a whole lot of separation between these guys at the top so yeah plenty of plenty of uh, discussion to be had about whether Freeman deserves to be number one or number three or number four but um, you know ultimately the the hit ability uh, and doing so at, at a high level is what uh, what landed Freeman number one yeah, absolutely. Again, he, he's always had, yeah, dating back to his days at Etiwanda High School and uh, someone that there is a track record here of exceeding expectations. I remember writing him up out of high school and people liked him, thought he was a good player, but there were a lot of people who thought that he was drafted maybe a, a touch high, um, that he wasn't quite in that day one consideration where where the Indians at the time took him. And so far, he, he's proven it at every level. So there is something to be said for expectations about his defense or his power. When the guy has a long track record of exceeding expectations, I think you do have to give it to him a little bit. With that, Teddy, we did have a, a lot of other players in this organization take a step forward last year. And as you mentioned, there were a lot of discussions about who should be number one. I want to dial in on Brian Rocchio a little bit. This is someone that people have been talking about for years as a really, really promising international signee. In 2020, wasn't able to get out of Venezuela due to the coronavirus pandemic restrictions and was kind of stuck at home uh, playing on his own came back last year and, and really had one of the more impressive seasons of any player in the organization, got up to double A, continued to play exceptional defense, uh, showed more power than expected, uh, 15 homers while stealing 21 bases, a lot of doubles. What do the Guardians have here and, and how good can Brian Rocchio be? I mean, I think he can be pretty, pretty, pretty good. I mean, you're looking at a player that has pretty consistently stood out for having above average shortstop defense, um, is a really heady player, um, just has an exceptional love and an understanding of the game. They nicknamed him the professor pretty early on in his tenure in the organization. And 
you know, I, he, he's a guy that like, yeah, he, he went back home when the pandemic started and then got stuck, like you said, but it's not like he sat around. Um, he, he was continuing to play. He played a lot uh, from my understanding down there in Venezuela and, you know, he might've been the best player in the country at the time, just the way things had, had worked out, but, you know, he was out there and he was working hard and you saw the results of that uh, this year when he, you know, went out and, and did, had the year that, that he did. I mean, he might be the shortstop of the future. There are obviously other players in the mix for that, but uh, you know, if you made me pick one, I mean, I, he, he might be the guy just because of the combination of what he's done uh, in all facets of the game and, and the rate at which he has progressed. Yeah, just looking at the reports, the defense really just jumps out, just how natural and effortless it was. He anticipates, he's creative out there. It, it's really uh, just kind of beautiful to watch him play shortstop in a lot of ways. One of the things I thought was interesting was the offensive numbers were very, very good. You look at what he did as a 20-year-old getting up to double A, hitting for average, getting on base, hitting for power. But some of the scouting reports didn't quite match up with the numbers. Uh, it seemed like there was kind of a split. There were a couple of evaluators who said that while they understood the numbers were good right now against the competition he was facing, they had some questions about how offensively impactful he would be in the major leagues. What is kind of the outlook for his offense right now and, and what kind of hitter he projects to be? Because it does seem to be a little bit divisive. Yeah, I mean, that's the big question is that, okay, he hit 15 home runs, but what did that 15 actually mean? And, you know, like I just said with Freeman, I'm not going to sit here and doubt anyone's ability to hit home runs uh, with the big league uh, setup today. But, uh, you know, that's, that's never been his game before. And it just doesn't seem like he's going to suddenly become a, you know, 20 home run a year hitter or whatever. He's a guy that like so many Indians prospects or guardians prospects, because this is what the organization, you know, really values and, and looks for as much as they can. Uh, he has uh, just a great innate ability with the, uh, with the bat. You know, he, uh, he, he has, great barrel control controls the strike zone. Well, and really that's his game. Uh, and if power comes with that, then, well, I mean, maybe power is going to come with that, but right now I think you're looking at a player that, that is more going to be attuned to, you know, hitting line drives, spraying those around the park rather than, you know, hitting a bunch of home runs. Yeah. And even if it takes him some time to adjust, one of the things that's come up is his defense will keep him there. And, and we do see that sometimes really, really gifted defensive shortstops. They come up, their defense keeps them around in the majors. And then as they just get a little bit bigger, a little bit older, a little more mature, all of a sudden we see the bat really start to come around at 26, 27. So uh, certainly a promising prospect. And no matter how the offense develops, there's a sense he can be an impact player. Again, even if it takes some time that the bat could still potentially make him a, a true, you know, everyday standout type of player with his defense. Teddy, putting together this top five, you mentioned that any of these five really could have been number one. With that, is there a clear-cut delineation after this top five? Did anyone in the 6-7 range? Because these, these are guys we've seen in the top half of the organization before, or was it a, this clear-cut top five? I mean, I kind of think at this point, it, it is a clear five. Uh, if you really still believe in Nolan Jones, I, I think you can 
make a case. I mean, the pedigree is still there. A lot of the raw tools are still there. Uh, but this is a player that hit 238 uh, in AAA. He hit 13 home runs is all. Uh, and this is a guy that has long had questions about, can he remain at third base? And, you know, what, even if those questions weren't there, even if you're a believer in Nolan Jones's defense, which I kind of generally am, uh, you know, we're still talking about a third baseman and not a middle infielder. So, you know, I, I, I do think there's there's kind of the split there. I mean, you see Jones, you see Bo Naylor uh, back there, but those are guys coming off of disappointing offensive seasons, and there's still reason to believe in them going forward. But I, I think that when you compare them to the players that are in the top five, it just looks a little bit different. All right. Well, I want to dive into Jones and Naylor a little more, as well as the rest of the system. First, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. And we are back with Teddy Cahill breaking down the Cleveland Guardians farm system. All right, Teddy, before we went to break, you mentioned Nolan Jones and Bo Naylor having struggled last season and as a result, still being in this top 10, but falling out of the top five when both of them had been kind of staples of it in recent years. What is the outlook for these two right now? Both of them really, really struggled offensively. Uh, You mentioned Jones at AAA, Naylor at AA. What realistically can Guardians fans expect from these two moving forward? Well, I think the 
big thing to remember with both of them is that Nolan Jones is going to be 23 on opening day and Bo Naylor is going to be 22. Uh, we're talking about guys that have gotten to the upper levels at pretty young ages. Uh, so they do have that going for them. And I think that's especially true for Naylor, who obviously is A, a year younger, and B, a catcher. Um, you know, so Bo Naylor is going to have to hit better than 188, 280, 332 going forward. That's, that's clear. He needs more consistency at the plate. Uh, but this is a guy that is a, a pretty athletic guy behind the plate and uh, brings value defensively. So, you know, I, I, I feel like, I, you know, Bo Naylor is ranked behind uh, Nolan Jones, but I, I, I feel like a little less concerned about that. Just there's less pressure on his bat. And so for him to be a valuable player for the Guardians going forward, obviously there's just more of an avenue to that. Um, Jones has a better track record for hitting. So I think that's what you kind of have to just rely on that. He's going to be able to make the adjustments and get back to that. And maybe he was pushing himself too much last year because he realized what could happen uh, with a good season in Columbus that, you know, Cleveland is, you know, he's really getting close to the big leagues now. Uh, But you also do have to realize that that's the, when you get to AAA, it's really the first time you're seeing, uh, matchup specialists come in to face you. It's the, you know, it's a time when you're as a younger player, you're facing guys who might be 10 years older than you with serious big league time that are trying to get back to the big leagues that really want to get you out that aren't sitting there working on their stuff. So I, it's a time for every young hitter to, you know, they have to make adjustments. And now we're going to have to see what Nolan Jones was able to, uh, to cook up here in the off season. Yeah. One of the things that came up with Jones and looking at some of the data this was kind of borne out that he really, really struggled with spin. Uh, what are some of the things he's working on in that regard? And what are some of the things the organization wants to see from him moving forward in that regard? Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of the biggest thing for him right now is, is to, to get better at that. And as a left-handed hitter, um, you know, again, you don't see as many lefty specialists early in your minor league career. So having gone to that experience in AAA, just getting better, at identifying spin, getting better at laying off the chase pitches, those are two of the the big things. And I mean, they go back to, you know, broader things that, that Jones is good at and can be good at and can get back to being good at, but needs to, to remember that, you know, controlling the strike zone is part of what made him an attractive player to this organization to begin with. And so you, you can't, you can't be as eager to chase pitches, especially, um, you know, spin yeah, one thing that's encouraging is he finished the year strong in August. He didn't play in September, but he finished August off very, very strong. So something that could potentially be, you know, something he can build on. With Naylor, in his pro debut at low A, offensively the numbers weren't great, but you looked at it from the perspective of he's a catcher, first full season, what the league is being the Midwest League, a lot of young kids struggle there early. So you kind of gave him some benefit of the doubt. I know I was surprised. The Guardians – pushed a lot of prospects very aggressively last year, given there was no 2020 minor league season. That really did stand out to me when I saw their opening day assignments. And a lot of kids did make the jump. Gabriel Ayers going from high to triple A held his own. We talked about Rokio already. 
but Naylor was someone who struggled with this large jump and the reviews on his bat were, were just not great. They kind of lined up with a lot of what we saw in terms of the performance, but it did come up a few times that a couple of evaluators felt he just wasn't ready for the level. He just wasn't ready to be seeing the quality of pitching he was seeing in some cases. How do you kind of assess his year and, and what is next for him? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're, it, it, it's a challenging thing for, for Naylor because he's always been young for the level. There's always been an explanation for why he might not have performed as well as, as you would expect. Um, but at the same time, he struck out in 31.5% of his plate appearances in 2022 or 2021. Uh, and he had, you know, the last time we saw him in 2019, he had struck out in just 23% of them. Uh, so that is that is one thing that absolutely has to get corrected. Um, he had been one of the best offensive performers at the alternate team site in 2020, and I think that's part of the reason why the aggressive assignment was made. But it uh, it obviously had its challenges, um, and now you're going to see him get another look at the the upper minors, um, and he'll be 22, and ideally the experience will be better for it. Uh, but we'll uh, we'll just have to see. I, obviously, offensively, he's got to find more consistency, and that's that's true. That that was true in 2019. Um, he got off to a slow start there, and again, it's cold in the Midwest League. He was like the youngest everyday player or thereabouts in the Midwest League that year. I all of it's understandable, but at some point, you do have to see uh, you you have to see the the tools turn into production. Is it more of an approach issue or a swing issue? Um, you know, I think it, I think it was more about approach this year than about Swain. Uh, but I, I, I think that, you know, there are, there are some things that he could fine tune in the swing, but I, I, I think generally it's more, you're looking at how do you, how do you get this, how do you get used to facing better pitching than you'd seen previously? And then how do you lock in at bat to at bat? With that, these top seven, again, are all guys who are fairly prominent. And I think from an outsider's perspective, you would expect it to have seen them in the top 10 in, in this organization ranking. How many other guys were kind of clear locks for the top 10 versus maybe guys that were kind of on the fence? Uh, you know, how many guys were kind of in the mix for, for these eight through 10 spots, if you will? Uh, well, I think the next couple spots were pretty well locked in. I mean, you draft a first round pick, you know, usually that's that that player is going to move into the top 10. I think that's true in almost any organization there. Every once in a while you see uh, a a team that had a really deep and strong top 10 and maybe picked at the back of the first round. And, you know, that, that team's first round pick doesn't, doesn't get in. I actually think that happened to the guardians uh, just a year ago, but uh, that that is, that's the rare exception. You know, commonly the, the first round pick enters the, the top 10. So Gavin Williams being the, the first round pick this year, uh, you know, massive fastball. Uh, that, that was, that was a pretty easy going in. And then, I mean, you could make arguments for other players, um, you know, for, for the nine and the 10 spot, but the way Logan Allen pitched this year, the way that he moved so quickly through the minor leagues uh, and, and the way that he's established himself as one of the next guys up in the, the pitching pipeline. I, I think he, he pretty well earned that spot as well. Yeah. He had one of the best seasons in the minor leagues. What does he do well and what does he project to be? Well, he has always stood out for his pitch ability going back to his high school days. He's not the biggest guy. They list him at six foot one eighty. Um, 
and so he he doesn't have massive stuff though his velo has ticked up in in recent years and um you know he can touch 95 but he's not he's not sitting there this is a guy that that is really relying more on pitchability and control and uh his changeup, which is you know a, a plus offering um but he he just really understands what he needs to do to get outs he controls you know his fastball into all four quadrants of the strike zone and the the way that he you know approaches hitters uh you know he was really able to make quick works quick work of the the low minors uh played well you know and at all levels, but I, I am going to be interested when he faces more advanced competition, how he adjusts to that. Teddy, as we put together our organization talent rankings, uh, the Guardians checked in at number 12, you know, not quite top 10, but top half of baseball pretty firmly and, and a pretty solid ranking. And one of the things that jumps out to me about this system, you mentioned there's not really a clear cut number one. You've got five guys who are pretty good. Uh, this back 10 group is is players who have shown potential in the past but have struggled or players who are good but have some questions. What really stands out to me about this organization more than the top 10 per se is the depth. There's a lot of guys as you look at this 11 to 30 group who are getting good reviews and and you can see really taking off. You look at Jose Tina, Peyton Battenfield, Cody Morris, John Kenzie Noel, Tobias Meyer, Stephen Kwan, Xavion Curry. It does seem there's guys sprinkled in here in the 11 to 30 range that I'll have a chance to be pretty good. How much of this organization's strength is their prospect depth, maybe more than just the top 10? I mean, it is like that. That is where the strength is. The strength is that it's a strong organization, one to 10, and it's strong one through 30. It's strong one through 50, however, however deep you want to go. There aren't many systems that have this kind of depth. And uh, I mean, this is really a philosophical argument to, to be had when you, uh, you know, suss out org rankings, how much emphasis do you place on, well, okay, but who, who is the best prospect in this system and, and who's the second best prospect? Like the, how much, how much do the stars at the top matter versus the depth? And if you're into depth, this is, I, I mean, I can't imagine that there are more than a couple organizations in the, in, in baseball that have better depth uh, than what Cleveland does. Now, you know, if you're looking for that star power, if you're looking for those guys who had breakout years, who rank in the top 25, 30 prospects in all of baseball, I mean, I, this is not necessarily where where you're looking. Um, you know, so I, I, I guess that that leads to how they rank outside the top 10, again, organizationally. But uh, the the depth, just the, the number of bites at the apple that the Guardians have, in terms of pitching prospects, in terms of middle infield prospects, I mean, I to me that that's uh, that's absolutely where the depth is. And, and what would be exciting is that you're not riding on Tyler Freeman to make it. If Tyler Freeman doesn't make it, uh, that's really unfortunate for them as an organization. But there are other middle infielders behind him, uh, and you would hope that they would hit on one or two of those. So given that, who are some of the top guys in the 11 to 30 range that really jump out for you? I'll, I mean, I, I love Cody Morris. What I saw from him was impressive. Uh, he's probably the guy I'm looking at. But who are some of the guys you're looking at that could really, really pop here? Well, Jose Tana at 11 is a cheat because he's 11. Uh, you know, honestly, if I redid the, the list right now, uh, he might be 10. He might be 9. Uh, he's really good. Um, he's, uh, he's definitely one for me. John Kenzie Noel. Um, is a big right-handed hitting corner infield type. And 
Uh, he's got some some serious power, and I, I've been excited about him for a couple of years. And you started to see that breakout last year, and you know th- there's more in the tank uh, to be found. And then I uh, I like what they got in Tobias Myers. Uh, you know he came over, um, you know in the off season in, in a trade uh, from the Rays, and I, uh, I I think they got uh, in, an intriguing prospect. Uh, on the mound and him, I mean, adding again to, to further depth on the mound. I, I think that that was uh, an intriguing pickup for them uh, before the, before the lockout went into effect. Yeah, there's no question. I, I will say, as I kind of think about it, who are the deepest systems in baseball, the pirates, the Rays and the guardians. I mean, those are the three that jump out to me off the top of my head. I do want to ask about Stephen Kwan. This was someone who was at Oregon State, was known as a you know an undersized bat-to-ball type of outfielder. You don't really know how much impact there's going to be. And he made some changes last year and, and really started getting into some power. He really jumped analytically, and that got us and a lot of other people starting to ask around about him from a scout perspective. And the reports kept coming back pretty good that with the changes he's made, he's a big leaguer. It's just a matter of what degree – what is the latest on Stephen Kwan and what do the guardians have here? That is a massive question. He's divisive. Uh, you're talking about a player that's listed at five, nine, uh, 175. You want to talk about questions about how much he's going to impact the baseball. Like this is, this is the operative uh, question a- about him. He was kind of a slap hitting leadoff hitter prior to this year. And then this year he went out and he showed a lot more power. He hit a bunch of home runs, but he did it in Akron and Columbus, which are hitter friendly ballparks. So what is real here is, is a huge question. Is he suddenly going to become a player that has, uh, you know, above average speed and is going to hit for some power because that's a really exciting player or, is his size and his approach at the plate, are those more suited to being kind of the slap hitting leadoff type, which generally has been out of vogue in baseball in recent years. And I don't have an answer to that question. I know I fall generally more on, well, I would love to see him do that again uh, before I buy in totally. But I also know that like we talked about with Freeman, this is a guy that betting against him has been a fool's errand and uh, you know, betting against Stephen Kwan now, you know, coming off of his best year as a pro uh, seems especially foolish, but he is going to, I, to me, I need to see that again, uh, you know, that kind of power again. And, and there, the Guardians have had players like this before, and it hasn't quite worked out. So I, you know, I'm working on some of this like prior track record stuff that, is maybe not getting out of my head fast enough. Maybe I'm not catching up to where Quan is today, uh, but he is he is a fascinating player uh, that is one of the players to watch in 2022. Just because I feel like if uh, if what you saw last year was real, that's a guy that can be an impact player for you know you know, can get into the Guardians lineup quickly. Uh, you know here this potentially this season. Um, or maybe, you know, you're going to see a, a, a different Quan, the, the one more like we were accustomed to before the 2021 season. 
Yeah, we'll see. Again, it's a good thing when you have an intriguing player in your 20 to 30 range of your system, because sometimes you're, you're struggling to find guys who have a whole lot of anything. And you look at the 20 to 30 group in this organization, and it's it's guys who have performed. It's guys who have some intriguing tools. It's guys who, even if you have some questions, there's something there that gets you a little bit excited. So we'll see what him and the rest of uh, the prospects here in the system are able to do. Teddy, before we wrap up, any final thoughts on the Guardians organization, you know, really top to bottom, majors, minors, just how this is all going to fit together? Well, I mean, we're talking about intriguing things here with Quan, and he's kind of also a poster child of another issue that they have going into this year is that the lockout has the potential to really affect Cleveland's prospects more than any other system because they went through and they kind of redid their 40-man roster at the roster deadline in November, and now a huge percentage of this list is on their 40 man roster. And that means that they can't be in spring training. Like when minor league camp opens, those guys can't be there, assuming the lockout is still going on. And I, you know, so what, what is that going to mean? How long is this lockout going to last? How far behind does that put some of these players? I mean, these are unknowables obviously right now, but they are something to watch uh, and a, a quicker resolution to the situation. Obviously it's good for everyone in baseball, but particularly for Cleveland, as a lot of these players should be in Arizona right now, working out with the big league team and they're lo- missing out on, on a chance for those reps and they'll miss out on a chance for, for their reps uh, once minor league camps do open as well. Yeah, by my count, 13 prospects on this top 30 list are now on the 40-man roster, most of whom have never played a day in the major leagues and some of whom have never played a day even in AAA. So these guys need the reps. And even if the lockout extends into the season, if potentially they're not able to play uh, the first couple of weeks of the season, that could set them back. So uh, certainly not something anyone wants. And hopefully for baseball as a whole, that gets figured out sooner rather than later. But that's a very good point that the Guardians are an organization that could be impacted more adversely than, than any other team. And uh, hopefully that doesn't happen. Teddy, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your insight as always. Absolutely. Always good time, like I said. All right, everyone, that'll do it for another Baseball America Prospects podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Teddy Cahill, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. 